FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have all of you with us uh, today. We've got a terrific panel lined up to talk about issues both uh, happening in Washington as well as in the state of Georgia. Uh, With me, as he often is, as often as we can get him in here on Tuesdays, is the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley, the boss uh, is with us. How you doing, Kevin? It's good, uh, good to be here, and we are very busy here on day two of the legislature session. So we should say that um, AJC's coverage every in the last what eight years, nine years—I don't know what the, the length of time is—but you've stepped up your coverage considerably. I really learned a lot reading the AJC uh, in terms of the legislature. Good. Well, I hope uh, all your listeners are subscribers uh, as well as supporters of your show. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. minute. Let's not go there. Costs a lot of money to uh, get a team like that down there, though. I will say that. Yeah, I mean, it's a big commitment. Glad the Cox family is supportive. Yeah, it's a big commitment, and we stick with it. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So, yeah. Um, If you're watching us on Facebook Live, which you can do by going to the GPB news page on Facebook, you'll see... Our other panelists in the studio, uh, they include Mo Ivory. Mo Ivory is a longtime uh, political activist, a Democratic political activist in Georgia, and uh, you're very involved with Fair Fight Action. Yes. We're going to talk a bit about Fair Fight Action today. Wonderful. I can't wait. Also, you know, I'm not sure I've ever talked about your radio career here. That's where an awful lot of people know you from. Yeah, I, I think they do. Um, long time on um, CBS Radio, that's now Intercom, yeah. with the Mo Ivory Show, and then I was on uh, V103's Morning Show, so um, I've really enjoyed that. Time. Yeah, Frank Ski and I ran into each other, I mentioned this before the show, at Lenox Mall with our wives over the holidays, and uh, Frank said he likes us, we love him, so we're going to get Frank in here to yeah, be Yeah, he will talk rewind. your head off and it'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> After a long absence, <laughs> far too long an absence. Rep- a year and a half. Yeah. Republican consultant Chip Lake is back with us. Good to you, be back. You went off to work on a campaign. a campaign. That's correct. You ended up as chief of staff correct. to Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor. Indeed. And uh, you gave that job ended in December. Early December. That's correct. And I've been waiting for you to I'm be happy available to, be back. to come back. <laughs> Thrilled. Thank you for inviting me back. Happy to be back. Absolutely. Um, also had one of the great sports podcasts in Georgia. You've got to get back we to do. that, Chip. We do. We I had a sports podcast <laughs> called the Red Zone Sports Report. We did it for three years. And uh, when I was a bureaucrat this year, didn't have time to get it. Uh, didn't have time to do it this year. We regret it. So I'm hopefully going to try to rekindle that <laughs> right, next year. I hope you do. And joining us from the NPR studios in Washington, Kyle Hayes, who is uh, the uh, person who oversees Peach Pod. Uh, Kyle, as we say when we introduce him on the show, is now based in Washington, but he's a Georgia boy and um, still keeps very much on top of Georgia politics. Uh, Kyle, uh, during the show today, we're going to talk a bit, among other things, about your most recent podcast, which is your interview with uh, Democratic Senate candidate, race number two, Matt Lieberman. How are you up there? I'm doing great. It's great to be back. It's the most wonderful time of the year, legislative session time. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And there are a few things going on in Washington that are of some interest, too, right Just now. Just a few. <laughs> hey, let me ask you about that, Kyle. 
Do you feel that in the air up there? Do you, you know, know what I'm saying? You get on the metro and it's and there's a different kind of electricity in the air <laughs> around all that's happening with impeachment and that sort or is it just another work day? Well, this I think is sort of the peak of that feeling again. You know, early in the Trump administration, there were so many sort of frantic things going on with policy changes and things like that that were relatively unprecedented that you sort of had that feeling every day. And I think people got burnt out on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But we're kind of back to that with this spectacle around impeachment and the uh, brief blow up with the U.S. and Iran. So. Yeah. Oh, I'll bet that's right, too. All right. Well, we're going to talk about a, a bunch of those things. Uh, Kevin, let me start with the latest uh, in national news, really national political news. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, met with her Democratic caucus this morning and basically uh, told them and got their sign off on the fact that she will now transmit the articles of impeachment to the Senate uh, tomorrow. And and they, you know, it's a formality, but they are literally, she'll ha pick a, a crew who will literally walk the articles across the building and hand them I don't know, to the clerk of the Senate, to McConnell's office. I'm not sure who gets them directly. But that means the trial, Kevin, is going to start any time now. Right. It looks like it's finally going to happen. And then all the speculation we've listened to about timing. Will will it be done by the State of the Union? Will it be done by this date or that date? I guess will will finally be worked out. But um, no, one seems, no one seems to think that the outcome is going to be any different than was sort of predicted Months and months ago, though, right? Um, yes. we. It, it, you know, Chip, we talked a little right before we went on the air about the fact that um, Doug Collins, who, of course, has been one of the president's most vociferous defenders in the House, uh, may have hoped and, for all we know, may have lobbied a bit, along with Jim Jordan, for an opportunity to represent the president in the trial. And the White House seemed to want that to happen. Sure. But it turns out that now McConnell is sort of put the brakes on that idea, right? Yeah, he has. Um, and we've been reading about that a little bit. A lot of the, um, the the D.C. publications, The Hill and Roll Call, have been talking about that dynamic. We've seen it behind the scenes, and now it looks like as of tomorrow or Thursday, we're going to find that out. Um, I'm hearing the trial might start the day after, uh, or next Tuesday, so a King day holiday, after yeah. Martin Luther King holiday. I would suspect it would be a quick trial. Um, I don't. What know does how, that mean? How quick is uh, quick? I, 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 that's a great question. I mean, I would think it would be done by... Uh, um, I would think it would be done in two weeks, two, okay. two and a half weeks. Um, the irony of all that is the House uh, the House passed impeachment, I believe, on the 18th of December. Here we are on the 14th of January, and the articles haven't been submitted. Um, you had mentioned at the beginning of the show that the Iowa caucuses happen to be on the 3rd of yeah. February. So I know there's been a lot of speculation about why the speaker actually waited so long, because she had two criteria that she wanted to get fulfilled before she submitted these articles of impeachment over. Doesn't look like either either two of those criteria are going to be filled. And so I certainly understand as, as a political operative why she didn't want to submit them on the 19th or 20th of December in, um, um, uh, because she didn't want Mitch McConnell to hold the trial in between Christmas and New Year's when not, not a lot of people were paying attention. Members didn't want to be there. So the timing is curious. I know a lot of Democrats that represent areas in her um, – um, in Congress that have been that are, were won by Trump, you know, the last time he was on the ballot, I know they want to see it done pretty quickly and get it behind them. But then there's a, a large portion of the base that want to see a long trial. And so um, get your popcorn. I think we're about to see it. And it's about to it's about to begin. Mo, uh, 
I think Chip gave us a couple of things we can unpack there. One of them is, and it's a question that's being asked right now, is do you believe that, that Speaker Pelosi gained anything by holding these articles longer than many people thought she should? Well, I don't know if we, if I could really ever answer that question because you would have to know her complete end game and know all the reasons why she does what she does. I do have the trust that all of her actions are always based on a longer um, uh, strategy than what we just see right in yeah, front of us. Yeah, she's no she's rookie. Not, yeah, she's not a rookie, and <laughs> she doesn't make short decisions. You know, so I, I, whether it looks like a gain or a loss, there's definitely something down the line that it's tied to. So you know, I go ahead and trust in that. But you know, we we. We have a president of the United States that wants to prevent any of his top officials from testifying, right? Trials have witnesses. I'm a lawyer. I've never gone to a trial that just you walk in and then, you know, they decide not to hear anybody and then the trial is over. It's just not how it works. But this is a president who does not believe in the Constitution, does not follow the Constitution. So he's going to do whatever he can to make sure that the things that he does not want the American people to know, because they will be considered in this next election, he's going to do everything he can to keep those hidden from the American public. And that's what he He's shown us time and time again. So this is no different. What I do agree with Chip about is get out your popcorn and let's watch and see, because I don't think it's going to be as simple as, well, Mitch McConnell's going to run the whole thing and it's just going to go exactly the way that he wants it to. I'm not sure that that's what's going to happen. Kyle, the other thing that uh, Chip said that's worth unpacking is that he expects it to be a pretty brief trial, maybe a couple of weeks. And while that may be the intention of uh, um, um, the majority leader in the Senate, McConnell, um, You just don't really know how things are going to unfold. It depends on how many Republicans in his conference decide they want to hear from witnesses. It's possible that McConnell may not. He's always so completely in control of his own members in the Senate. But on this one, he may not be he may not have the iron grip that he typically does. Right. Right. I mean, he's walking a tightrope with the strategy that he has chosen, which is to basically manage this process with only Republican votes in the U.S. Senate. So they can't lose. I believe it's uh, more than two or three votes on issues like will witnesses be called or there was this brief flirtation with the idea that maybe the Senate would just dismiss the trial before it really even gets going. Which is what and the he president got... lately is saying he wants. Sure. Right. It, but Republican uh, members of the Senate sort of pushed back on that and to some extent even said that, you know, this is the first fair opportunity for President Trump to have his side of the story heard. Um, so it's going to be a tight strategy for uh, Mitch, or it's going to be a tightrope for Mitch McConnell to walk. And this is significantly different than the strategy during impeachment in 1999 for Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. The rules for that impeachment were passed with a hundred to nothing vote because they were agreed upon by both parties. And McConnell is basically wanting to run this as a Republican only process. So here's what we expect to see tomorrow. We expect the House will convene. I'm not quite certain yet what time they're going to convene, but they w- when they convene, they will take a vote on transmitting the articles of impeachment. They're limiting uh, the resolution on that and on who the uh, managers of the trial should be. The House manager should be to 10 minutes, which means that Nancy Pelosi, Kevin, is not going to allow for a long debate in which she, I mean, she wants to control it. She doesn't want Republicans like Doug Collins to have the opportunity to get up and once again attack the process. And so it's interesting that they want to move that 
impede yeah, that process forward uh, efficiently tomorrow. Yeah, one thing, uh, uh, the New York Times is now reporting that they may not walk the actual... Oh, really? Uh, uh, the actual, um, you know, have that, what will be a dramatic procession, I suppose, from the House over until Thursday. Apparently there's some other sort of ceremony That's exactly going right. On. Thank yeah. you for pointing and that out. And then, of course, the Chief Justice also, right, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, has to come over. So mm-hmm. uh, it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out, what's it, what it looks like, because you do have two leaders of the two chambers who are absolutely trying to control this thing. Yeah. And the only other thing I would add is um, I, I would suspect you would see a a, a quick trial. The, the one curveball to that could be John Bolton. You know, he has said publicly that he would be willing to come and testify before the Senate. The president in the White House has said if he is called or subpoenaed before the Senate, they will use executive privilege. That is that's the the, the one kind of curveball in this process, because the Susan Collinses, the Lisa Murkowski's and, and I think there might be one or two other Republicans in the Senate have said publicly that they think um, if uh, um, if former um, uh, U.N. Ambassador Bolton wants to come and testify, um, they believe he should be afforded that opportunity. I, I would think Mitch McConnell would like to uh, avoid that scenario, and certainly the White House would. But that that might be the one thing that could really slow this down because it could end up in court. I well, just think Bolton's not going to show up because it'll hurt book sales. I don't oh, think it's complicated. I, I, I really don't funny. think it's complicated. I, Mo, that's funny. I think it's just the opposite. I think John Bolton had to make that offer to testify because he realizes if he does something as crass as going out on a book tour talking about everything he knows without having offered to have been part of the process, he'll be attacked from the day that he goes on the road. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, remember that John Bolton is the one that call, uh, called the whole uh, Ukrainian situation a drug deal. Yeah. So, you know, folks want to hear from him. And I think that he was calculating whether that was a good move, you know, for him. I actually, when I sit back and I think about sort of what this circus looks like on TV and what it does to a voter, I always feel that it's a great ethics lesson for um, educating America on how our processes go, things that don't happen often, like we don't get the chance to impeach a president often and go to a trial, and then they understand. I had somebody say to me, well, who is the chief of the uh, United States Supreme Court? You know, who's the chief justice? I mean, things that people don't really know. These kinds of opportunities serve as a, a way for people to learn civics in a way that they don't normally get to. And to me, that means that once they join in sort of learning more, there's a more a bigger possibility that they vote. The more people vote, you know, the likelihood that Democrats will take everything back. I went out to the University of Georgia uh, late last year at the invitation of uh, Audrey Haynes, political science professor who's often on Political Rewind, and uh, spoke to all the political science students. And at the end of the uh, talk that I gave, one of the students came up to me and said and asked me a question that's completely apropos of what you just said, Mo. She said, I'm student teaching a class next semester in political science if you had to pick a focus for what I should be teaching, what would it be? I said, separation of powers. Oh, yeah. The Constitution mm. and what it mandates in, in terms of the co-equal branches of government. government. Because, Kyle, it is absolutely true that there's this lack of civic education these days that probably contributes to the uh, extraordinary partisanship that we're experiencing right now, you know? Well, there is, and then you get examples of how separation of powers and and lack of respect for those principles has been abused in other situations like the uh, Trump administration strike against Iran and and the debate in Congress on that and whether or not Congress has sort of let their 
their require their responsibility to declare war go by, you know, if we pointed these things out as they arose more often, people might be more sensitive to them. All right. Um, as we move on from that conversation about Washington today, um, I do want to give you a quick program note. Uh, we, we're not certain of what the timing is. Chip has been hearing the same thing that's been in the atmosphere, which is it's likely it'll start the day after the King holiday. Whether it actually starts then or maybe even late this week, it will certainly be up and running throughout next week and beyond. The talk is that they will meet in the Senate between late morning and early evening, say between noon, six, seven, eight o'clock at night. All of that is to say we're keeping a close eye on that here at GPB. Um, of course, we're going to carry NPR's coverage of the impeachment trial as it gets underway, which means that political rewind at two o'clock won't be on the air. But Starting next Tuesday, we will do a live political rewind at nine in the morning uh, so that you still have us uh, to uh, talk about all of the politics, the legislature's in session uh, and all the other things that are going on in the state of Georgia, as well as whatever the national news is. So I just wanted to make that clear. And we'll talk about that again as we get closer to the end of the week and probably have a much better sense of what the uh, schedule is going to be. All right. Why don't we do this? Why don't we get a first break of the show out of the way right now? We've got a lot of state news to talk about. We'll do that right now. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Welcome back. We've got uh, Kyle Hayes in at NPR in Washington. Mo Ivory is here in the studio. So is Chip Lake and the AJC editor, Kevin Riley. Um, Kevin, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Kyle, let's go to you. Your podcast, as we mentioned at the very top of the show this week, which, by the way, people can download wherever they get their podcasts from, Peach Pod. Uh, you talked to Matt Lieberman, and um, you had a pretty extensive conversation with him He did our show right after he announced he was going to run for Senate seat number two. Of course, he's the son of Joe Lieberman, so he's got quite a political pedigree. But he himself has never been a candidate before now. And I want to be candid and then get your thoughts as we talk about what he told you and play some of what he told you, Kyle. He came in here and it felt like the first interview of a candidate who wasn't hadn't been tested. It was it, his. He hadn't quite started uh, figuring out how he wanted to talk about his candidacy, and so it was probably a little. We didn't necessarily get a good idea of who he's going to be as a candidate. Tell me about your conversation with him. So I would say, based on on your reaction there, Bill, I think he has maybe started to feel a little more comfortable in the role as a candidate. Mm-hmm. I felt like his interview was on par with other candidates I've talked to who have previous political experience in terms of getting to his message and in defining who he wants to be as a candidate. Um, I thought the most interesting thing about that interview was when he said that he was committed to this race, even if the Democratic Party puts their support behind a different candidate. And you could sort of see him beginning to come up with a rationale for his candidacy that he may be the moderate candidate who can appeal to both sides of the aisle. When we talked to him about the uh, Iran strike and his reaction to it and the the fallout from it, um, he sort of drove messages that could appeal to people on both sides of the aisle where he said he was glad Soleimani was dead because he was a terrorist who had American and Syrian blood on 
hands. But he also reiterated that Congress reserves the the responsibility to declare war and that Trump needed to come back to Congress before he did that. So broadly, you could sort of get the sense that he could place himself in the middle of this race if he feels like that's beneficial to his campaign. He got jumped, uh, Chip. I'm not sure if you saw the news on this, but 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 uh, Matt Lieberman did get kind of jumped by his own father on the Soleimani <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah. targeting. Uh, his dad very quickly said, I support it wholeheartedly, uh, which could have put Matt in a bad position, but, you know, he completely embraced yeah. it in his conversation with Kyle. He did. And and I, I tell you what's going to be very interesting about the dynamics of this race that will be completely different than the dynamics of the David Perdue race and whoever the Democratic nominee is to run against him is, you know, we have we have primaries in this state in May. This race is very different. You're going to have, in all likelihood, several Republican candidates running, um, probably at least two, maybe three, and you could have two to three or maybe more Democratic candidates. So while David Perdue and his opponent are 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 um, are running general election campaigns, um, and it looks like Matt Lieberman might kind of naturally get in to, to fit, and I'm certainly his father fit in that space. And so... Uh, um, uh, that very well could be uh, it could be a tactic and a strategy that benefits him with the dynamics of how this race is shaping up. But um, I mean, politics is always, as you know, Bill, from being in this in, uh, your entire life, expect the unexpected. I, I think this cycle in this state, um, you know, that we, we can't take those words for granted because yeah. it's it's going to be it's going to be wide open. Uh, Mo, everybody talks, both Republicans and Democrats, by the way, when it comes to race number two, mm-hmm. the Isaacson seat about how important, given that it is a jungle election where everybody runs on one ballot uh, with no with the party identification might be there, but but there's no primary, as Chip points out, about how important it would be to have a to consolidate around one candidate. Uh, it's not going to happen for Democrats because Matt Lieberman is certainly not likely to be the choice of uh, the uh, Democratic Senate campaign committee in Washington and maybe not the state party either. And we we already know that we've got at least a couple other people who are looking. Ed Tarver is going to get in, former Southern District uh, uh, of Georgia, uh, U.S. attorney. So the Democrats aren't going to have a consolidated candidate and we probably are going to see likely uh, uh, Kelly Leffler find a challenger on the Republican side, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we are the only state um, in the entire country that's going to have two Senate races. And, you know, that's um, helped push Georgia into the limelight of being, you know, a um, a battleground state. So, I mean, I think all eyes are on us, but we have a lot of time before qualifying happens. And, you know, um, you know, kudos to Matt for jumping out, you know, in front and starting to do interviews or whatever. But I think we'll see the landscape change greatly on both sides. Right. And we have no idea um, what's coming. But I think that, you know, the idea that Georgia has, you know, 16 electoral votes, two Senate races going on, trying to flip the House. I mean, so many things uh, to watch and see and very hard to predict at this early stage. Bill, uh, I was here that day when when the first time oh, that's that, right. that came in, right? He, he was a little... And remind me, was that before or after Kelly Loeffler's name had Oh, emerged? no, that was before. It he was jumped well into before, this race right? well before. Well before. Yeah. And so to me, uh, what's been strange about this on the Democratic side, I mean, the Republican... The side, I think, is, uh, you know, kind of a 
also interesting. But on this side, first of all, as we talked, I mean, on the show before, the Democrats seem to let Kelly Loeffler just have the stage completely uh, and entirely for a long, long period of time. And then um, Matt, at least, has raised his hand. You got to yeah. give the guy credit. Mm-hmm. I mean, how could what what have the Democrats been thinking about? Yeah, he was opportunistic. Well, I, mean, I think what I think what the Democrats have been doing is you know strategizing and planning and and uh, you know raising money. And I think that that's an equal uh, an equally significant strategy as you know just sort of putting somebody up front if that's a str- the strategy. So I think that we'll see in the next weeks um, more candidates come that make sense. And you know we you've even brought up certain people that um, they've been thinking about. So I mean I think if we just give it a little bit of time, I don't think the the silence is necessarily a, a showing of weakness as much as it is a showing of strategy and the idea that there's going to take a lot of thought put into this in order to give Georgia its its greatest strength. So Would you say that the idea that Kelly's had to, Leffler's had to kind of prove her conservative bona fides, you know, that's been mm-hmm. a big part of what she's done. Is that what Democrats were hoping would happen? Is that kind of where you want her uh, affiliated as strongly with Trump as possible, do you think? Well, I mean, I think that she's doing that all on her own without any Democratic <laughs> help at all, you know, so I don't think, you know, there's a, a, a strategy and I don't speak for the party or anything like right. that, the, what the Democrats want from her. But, you know, we know where she stands, where she's aligned. And I think the Democrats, you know, make plans based on what we know we have. Right. I don't want to get away from from Matt Lieberman quite yet, because uh, you did do an extensive interview with him, Kyle, and I want to play a little sound from it. I do. Before we play the sound, though, Kyle, you asked him uh, about whether there should be witnesses in the uh, impeachment trial. He, he said something. He said, I do think it would be preferable. But he said, given the political reality, we're going through a charade because I just don't think you're going to get two thirds of the senators to remove him from office. So ultimately, I'm not hung up on this because I almost feel like the conclusion of this drama is foreordained. That may be the case, but it it you don't really want to argue that it that this isn't a showcase for Democrats to have an opportunity, they think, to tell the country about President Trump, right? It it may not be going the way Democrats want it to, but calling it a charade is a kind of a, a step in the a, a direction a little too far, it seems to me. I think so. And I th- I think that this was where I got the indication that he may still kind of be feeling around for where exactly yeah, he wants to position exactly. himself. He's the first candidate that I've talked to that actually sort of drew the distinction between impeachment in the House and conviction in the Senate. And when I asked him if he would vote for the articles of impeachment, if he were there now, he said he wasn't going to give me a direct answer that he wanted to hear the process out, but then made this comment about it being a charade. So you know, he may actually be backing away from this spot where he was earlier in Um, terms of how he feels about this. Let's do this. Let's listen to what he told you about his sense that it is conceivable that this seat might be ripe for the pickings uh, by Democrats in this next cycle. My sense is that the party, both in the jungle primary and in uh, the regular primary going on in the race for the other Senate seat is really taking a wait and see um, stance and uh, a stance of neutrality at this point. I would love to have everyone's support. Um, uh, I can absolutely see how it would behoove us to rally behind one candidate. One thing that I feel great about is that I've been out there busting my butt doing what you need to do to be ready to win a U.S. Senate seat. 
over the last three, four months, which is, you know, raise money, start organizing. So, uh, Chip, you got to say this about him. Uh, and, and by the way, he confirms what Kyle just said. He's trying to find the, that ground in the middle of that sure. neutral ground. Uh, he shows $700,000 raised since the uh, beginning of his campaign, only in a few months. You've got to take somebody like that some, somewhat seriously. <laughs> oh, there's no question about it. And, and especially given the fact that um, as a Republican, we, we have – we have discussions. I'm sure the Democrats do as well about, you know, strategically how are the how are the Democrats going to position their candidates in these races? Meaning, it certainly looks like right now that most of the candidates are in the race against David Perdue. From a lot of my Democratic friends, um, the the sense that I get from them, Bill, is that they are more concerned, not necessarily with what's going to happen in November. They feel quite good about it, what's going to happen in November, but the dynamics of a of a runoff. And so with Matt Lieberman getting out and saying, you know what, I'm the first one in this other seat. And, and I, I think you're right. I think he was in this race long before the governor picked anybody to fill Johnny Isaacson's role. And so, you know, time will tell whether or not that was a good decision or not. But certainly looks like right now it's not quite as crowded, uh, at least right now. That might not be the case two weeks from now, given all the reports we have about uh, uh, Ralph Warnock and, and others possibly looking at getting in the seat. But right now it, it looks like he's made the right decision. Mo Ivory, Raphael Warnock. He's a very enticing potential candidate out there. We've talked about him on the show quite a bit this week so far. And I we're mean, only on day two of this week. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, um, I go to Ebenezer, so yeah. uh, obviously, you know, I'm um, very um, familiar with him. And uh, we were both in the same class at Morehouse and Spelman, um, a class of 19 19- something. And so, um, you know, it's exciting to even um, hear that that could be a possibility. He's dabbled in politics before. But again, you know, I don't know um, that that will be the case. But I think that, you know, Democrats, you know, as you talked about strategy, you know, I think the strategy is to win two seats and uh, to do everything that, you know, we can in November to make that happen. And so, um, you know, I think that um, Matt jumping in and raising a significant amount of money, you know, is, is a great thing, because if he ends up being the person he's shown some very good qualities, you know, very early, even though he's never been a candidate before. But that could change everything. Um, I mean, everything could change and we could see somebody even stronger. So it's it's, it's exciting to me to hey, see what could happen. Bill, can I ask Chip a question on this one? <laughs> Since, you know, you, you got, or both of you, really, I guess, yeah. you know, run campaigns and advise, advise candidates. So I know the Reverend Warnock a little bit nature of my job, his job, and he has written for our pages at times, and mm-hmm. he's a very uh, passionate guy. I mean, when he's involved in a cause uh, that he cares about, I mean, he's a he's a he's an inspiring spokesperson for it, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a good writer. He, but I mean, if you're advising a political candidate, what is it someone like him doesn't know about what it's going to take to get elected? Oh, my. Mo, do you want to take a shot at that first or do you want me wow. to? I mean, you know, I, I I mean, I think like any other candidate, I know when I was running for city council, you know, I didn't know anything. Right. And I went to people that I felt, you know, uh, leader Stacey Abrams being the very first person that I went to, you know, should I do this? What do I need to know? What do I need to read? What's unexpected? What are they going to look at? What's oppo research? You know, I mean, all of those things that, you know, a candidate needs to be aware of when assembling their team. So I think the the way, um, you know, whether it's him or any other Democratic candidate or Republican candidate for that matter, you know, there's that 
that come to Jesus meeting, right? Where like, you know, is this, a, could this be? Because he has could, such a prominent role now. I mean, yeah. he's a very important guy yeah, in a sure. lot of ways. Yeah, and it, and it, very. I, and, you know, I, I would say this to any candidate, and if you talk to any candidates that have worked for me over the years, um, you know, they'll tell you when I sit down with a candidate that I'm either pitching or I want to work for or I want to talk to about whether or not it's right for them to get in the race. Um, they're long conversations. And I don't think too many of those people have left those conversations with um Candidates that I've had conversations with saying, wow, he was encouraging and he wanted me to do that. <laughs> this is gonna right. be Running Kyle, for office Kyle, is so tough, so, so tough, both sides. Kyle, yeah. um, right. we started this by talking about your podcast with Lieberman. Is there anything else uh, we should know about that podcast? We, people can go, as I said, get it and listen to it themselves. Is there any other one thing before we move on that struck you about your conversation that we should know about? Um, I think consistently when I talk to Democrats running for office, they talk about gun regulations by talking about uh, lockdown drills that students have mm. to go through. And I wonder if, given that the political battleground in Georgia is in the suburbs in 2020, if that message might resonate a little bit, given the way they approach it. All right. It. Um, okay. Thank you for that. Um, let's move on. Uh, Kevin Riley, the, we know that uh, the, the budget is going to dominate much of this session more than it. I mean, it's always the biggest item on the agenda of the state legislature. But this year, especially given that Brian Kemp has asked for these four percent in the current budget, six percent in the fiscal year budget that starts uh, later in the summer. Um, but uh, despite the fact that they're cutting left and right, and next week when they have budget hearings, it's going to be fascinating to see how agency heads come in and make their case for not taking the cuts that uh, they may be expected to. But they're still considering a quarter percent cut in the state income tax rate, uh, which they already did last session as well, which may have contributed to the fact that we're experiencing some difficulties in raising revenue. But I want to... in. Framing that part of the conversation, I want to talk about this uh, poll, which the University of Georgia uh, conducted, commissioned by the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute. I think we should say out front, Chip, it would be fair to say that many people would consider them to be a more liberal-leaning organization. Yes. It's not that they don't give accurate numbers, sure. but they, when they release data, they often do it because they want to make a case, right? That's, Isn't that's that fair? fair? That's I mean, fair. They're, they're a legitimate organization, given all that. That's fair. So here's what's interesting about that, Kevin. The survey shows 42% of voters support the tax break when told the change would only save a family earning $50,000 about $5 a month. Um, so in other words, well under a majority uh, don't, they say, yeah, we'd still take it, but it's not going to save us much money. Um, but only about 8% of the respondents said they felt strongly about seeing the tax break happen at all. Um, the backing falters. It drops to 31 percent when voters are told the three-fourths of the tax cut would go to those earning more than $100,000 a year. We can go on with this, but the point is that the less money you're going to get back from this tax break, the less likely it is that you're going to support uh, the legislature doing it. Right. But I mean, I, I mean, I, as someone who spent way more of his career working with budgets than I w ever thought I'd have to, they've got several I mean, things going on, right? I mean, they're being asked to cut the budget. 
They're being, meanwhile, they're tempted to cut taxes, which cuts revenue. I mean, and, and, you know, in an election year, who doesn't want to say they cut taxes or found a way? And then there's also this argument about uh, whether they're really collecting all the taxes that they should. So, I mean, I think when a, when a poll like this is, is sort of positioned this way, average people are smart. They're like, yeah, well, in my house, if, if money's down, I, I don't get yeah. to raise expenses. I mean, it's really sort of simple. So I don't know what they'll do, but it just seems uh, very confusing right now. And uh, at some point, they've got to pass a balanced budget. And, and that's mm-hmm. tough to do. Mo? Yeah, I mean, it's always good to um, talk when uh, you're dealing with a budget to get everybody really confused, you know, because then it's like, OK, well, I don't understand this anyway. But I don't think this is different than any other time when uh, they were thinking about cutting taxes. It's an old Republican playbook to cut taxes on the rich um, and then hope and pray that the lower class will benefit from it, which we know that it doesn't. And it really has to do about really creating jobs. And I think one of the most important things that we that does not need to be done, which Brian Kemp has said that he will do, is to you know um, nudge at the tax incentives in the film industry. We know for sure, even with the audit that that happened and all of the conversation about it, we know for sure that these tax incentives in the film industry bring jobs to Georgia, jobs for everyday people that work in food service, that work in makeup, that work in all um, facets of the industry. So it's my hope that if he is going to do some kind of cut, it's not going to be to the film tax incentives that actually create jobs. I apologize. Mm -hmm. Chip, I mean, it's Republicans often are the ones who want to see the tax rate lowered. Um, How important do you think it is this year to get an additional quarter percent? It it feels like it's not really worth going to the mat for, but I'm not sure I know the the reality behind that. Well, you had talked earlier at the beginning of the show about a civics lesson and the separation of powers at the federal level. What's going on in the discussion we're having in Georgia about this budget is a civics lesson between what the executive branch wants to do and the governor and what the legislative branch yeah. wants to do. You've got two appropriations committee chairmen who have done a great job, and I think the governor would admit they've done a great job, and they've been doing that job for a long, long time. You now have a governor who's new. He comes in. He hasn't been – he wasn't the favorite, wasn't supposed to win. He won. Um, there was a previous governor who handled the budget very differently. This governor's handling the budget very differently. And so I, I think I think this is going to be the issue that dominates most of what happens in session. The answer, I, I don't know the answer to your question, sure. which which makes it such an issue to follow, right? Because you are going to have um, you are going to have uh, the income tax cut. You're going to have a, a, a big discussion about the film tax credit. You're going to have a discussion about, OK, the 6 percent, 4 percent. What most people don't know is the governor doesn't have to spend money that's been appropriated, but he cannot spend money that hasn't been appropriated. Right, right. And that's kind of that's rubbed, it, that's that's rubbed really the legislature wrong, rubbed them a little wrong over the past year because some of the, the items that passed in last year's budget have yet to be, have yet to be, um, the money's yet to be spent. I didn't know that. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. Yep. Um, so, Kyle, uh, one of the things that we're now hearing that's coming up, uh, came up yesterday late in the, the day of the session is that there's going to be a new push, and apparently the House and Senate are fairly close to agreement on the language, to uh, start enforcing collection of the sales tax on companies that uh, sell on online. And uh, the estimate of, by the people who are behind this push is that it could generate as much as $300 millions, million dollars a year and more in new revenue. That's a uh, powerful place to start looking for revenue that the state needs. Yeah, and I think it signifies that 
lawmakers who are dealing with these complicated budget issues are really feeling pressure on this issue. And that's why I'm not surprised that they're looking at this change that would bring in more revenue. I was a little surprised that uh, the the prospects for gambling legislation were sort of dismissed in the Senate yesterday by the lieutenant governor yeah. um, as being not a priority because that's a revenue item. But I think broadly, when you look at this, you can sort of see to sort of get back to what Chip was saying about a civics lesson between different branches of government, you can see the movement between different players on this issue. And I was really struck by the fact that both Speaker Ralston and Governor Kemp sort of looked at each other's priorities and sort of tried to dismiss being responsible for them. Governor Kemp, who ran on the teacher raises and is a big supporter of those, when Speaker Ralston was asked about whether they would be done this session, he said, well, that's a laudable goal, but that wasn't my campaign promise. Similarly, Governor Kemp said that he was not here during the discussion over the tax cuts and that while he generally supports tax cuts, that would have to be balanced against other priorities. So this, I think, is sort of the blockbuster issue for session is how these players maneuver with each other because these budget issues are really difficult. It's going to be fast. Mm -hmm. And and make no mistake about it. The speaker is in a stronger position this session than he was last session. Because? Well, because it it, it certainly appears like he's not going to have a lot of the baggage that he had from last session. The bad story, the problems surrounding him, reported by Kevin's mm -hmm. newspaper. And then, secondly, um, and this is not a criticism of the governor, but every governor, when he comes in or she comes in that first year, and we dealt with it, I was in the lieutenant governor's office dealing with the same dynamic. You have some sort of a honeymoon, right? You you get sworn in after day one. You get sworn in at two o'clock on day one, and so they don't really expect you to come in and and they know you haven't had a year to kind of set this up. And so nobody wants to get on the bad side of a new governor, a new lieutenant governor. And it's not like everybody's dying to get on the bad side of a governor, lieutenant governor today. But the, the, the dynamics are you always have less political capital as you as you go further in your term because you have to spend it. And, and I, I think watching what the House does and what the governor does is uh, going to be fascinating. I, I want to follow up with you, Chip, since you were his chief of staff until <laughs> recently. Uh, Kyle points out that the, he was surprised uh, or he, he was a little surprised yesterday to hear the lieutenant governor speak out against the idea of ga- gambling in the state. But that's a moral and an ethical issue for the lieutenant governor, right? And, yeah. and the other thing that goes along with that, though, is uh, people shouldn't forget that while the lieutenant governor himself is a fairly powerful force in the state Senate, he is not necessarily the final word. The president pro tem of the Senate has sure. a great deal of uh, opportunity to push his or her position, depending on who's in that spot. No question. And and I didn't I didn't realize I've been doing this um my whole life, 25 years, I didn't realize the profound differences that exist between the House and the Senate until I came into this role a year ago. Lieutenant Governor's not a member of the Senate. The Speaker is. That's a big difference. Of the House. I'm sorry. Of the House. And I even remember talking to a... Um, um, talking to a senior member of the governor's staff who's very smart, very, you know, knows uh, halfway through session. And, and the individual asked me, they said, well, what happened? You know, what what um, you know, what happened at caucus today? And I said, I don't know. And he said, what do you mean you don't know? And I said, well, we didn't go. You're not there. Well, you didn't go. Well, yeah. Certainly you sent a staff member. I said, no, lieutenant governor doesn't go to caucus meetings because he's not a member of the caucus. Yeah. He can go if he's asked. And, and if he asks, but that's once, two, three, four times a session. All right. got to get our final break of the show out of the way. So let's do that right now. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind. 
Uh, we're back on Political Rewind in the last, oh, maybe 10 minutes or so while we were talking. Uh, Tom Faust uh, uh, called to my attention the fact that um, Majority Leader McConnell in the U.S. Senate has indicated he will start the impeachment trial as Chip Lake predicted on Tuesday after the MLK He must have been listening holiday. to the show. Is that <laughs> right? Chip said, okay, I can go ahead. Every and now and then. Yeah. 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 And he must want to catch Raphael Warnock's um, speech <laughs> yeah. at um, yeah. Ebenezer on Monday. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. Sure yeah. that's what that, it is. Gotta be a stride. <laughs> uh, let's take up a couple of other issues. We're not going to have as much time as I'd, I'd like, but let's do this. Mo, I'm going to come to you on this because you're very involved with Fair Fight Action. James Salzer had a really interesting piece in the uh, AJC the other day in which he talked about the amount of money that the state parties, the GOP and the Democrats, have raised. And what's fascinating about this is on the Democratic side, he looked at disclosure reports that show that the state party has raised about $740,000. I'm not quite sure whether that, how long a period that covers, but that's beside the point, really. 370 of it, half of it, was money that came from fair fight because mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams is a fund-raising machine. Yes, that's one thing she is. Um, so Fair Fight and uh, Leader Abrams, you know, they believe in a strong Democratic Party here in Georgia. And they know what, um, you know, Georgia is trans is in a transformative state right now. Um, and so they believe in supporting that effort. And so, you know, Fair Fight, I'm sure you saw all the disclosures there as well, you know, did a great amount of uh, fundraising and to the kudos of, you know, Leader Abrams and Lauren Growargo and the whole entire staff that really focused on being able to support uh, Democratic parties, not just in Georgia, but, you know, across many um, states that are going to be crucial and are crucial in 2020. Um, At the same time, Chip, uh, state Republican Party raised uh, something like uh, uh, close to a million, like I think $982,000. And half of that came from the Republican National Committee or Joint National Fundraising, uh, mostly from an organization, Take Back the House. Uh, There's no question that both Democrats and Republicans are getting a lot of money from outside the state. But the way that story plays out is it sounds as if the Democrats are getting more uh, value from people within the state than Republicans are. Is there anything to that, or is that not the case? I think it's, yeah, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, I, I think when the the books are closed and the dust settles on this election cycle, um, you're going to have well in excess of a hundred million dollars spent on these two. Well, maybe even more when you include the fact that the second Senate race is almost guaranteed to go to a runoff. And so you have that. You got uh, Georgia, which is a purple state at most. It's a 51-49 state. Um, it's very competitive, as competitive as it's ever been for a presidential election. You throw two Senate races on top of that. Um, these are these are good fundraising numbers for both parties, yeah. given the fact that, yeah. that that state parties all around the country have uh, they're, they're not raising the dollars that they've raised in, in previous, um, you know, uh, maybe in previous cycles because of the of the, the growth of groups like Fair Fight. And and we have independent committees on our side that do the same thing. And so um I, I think it's good. Both parties are raising money. At the end of the day, um, both parties will likely serve as pass-throughs for their national committees and yeah. for other outside yeah. committees. Mm-hmm. To Kevin, to do you just do sort of gulp 
when you hear Chip Lake say, yeah, we'll probably have $100, $100 million invested in 2020 races all told. You really begin to wonder where it can end. Um, and, and actually, my question is, um, uh, what the, the, how do you spend it wisely? I guess. I mean, there seems to be no limit to how much you can raise, yeah. but I think the dynamic of where and how to spend it is is really oh, yeah. what's changing, right? I mean, you have oh. to... It used to be just buy as much TV as you yeah. can, and it just isn't that anymore, right? Kyle, do voters care anymore about the amount of money in politics? I mean, I know that's a subjective question, and you obviously can't give a definitive answer, but what's your sense of that? <laughs> There's so much money in politics now, it's hard to know where you should be outraged and where you shouldn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see a Bloomberg, a Tom Steyer putting personal fortunes into it, but when it comes to just the general numbers, do we care anymore? You know, I don't know that it resonates with sort of average voters the way that other issues do. I think activists care a lot, and I think candidates take strong positions, particularly some Democratic candidates who want to overturn the Citizens United decision. Yes. But it's not a that leading agenda sure. in Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. I, that's fascinating. All right. A quick round on this one, because uh, we don't have a lot of time. Kyle, 9 o'clock tonight, Eastern Time, six Democratic candidates for president, CNN, Des Moines Register debate in Des Moines. Uh, last time that they'll meet before the Iowa caucuses, which take place on Monday night, February 3rd. Give me a headline of what you're what do you what do you want to see tonight? What do you Bernie think? Bernie Sanders you'll see? is who I'm Bernie Sanders is who I'm watching because he's got momentum in the polls and time is running out before the early state caucuses and, and people want to blunt his momentum before they get past the early states. Mo, uh a lot of people thought tonight was going to be about Bernie Sanders attacking Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. But now that he and Elizabeth Warren are engaged in a war over whether Bernie Sanders thinks a woman can win the White House mm-hmm. and told her that, it's likely that's where the energy is going to be focused. If I were a moderator, I'd certainly want to dig into that. Sure, I agree. I think that's certainly where it's going to be focused. But I don't think it'll benefit either one of them. But yeah. it will benefit, you know, sort of a third person, you know, standing over to the side. And so I I, I just wish for when this debate is over that uh, Democrats can feel clear about somebody. Good luck. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> and that's really all I've ever I, – whoever it is, I've just wanted to see one person, you know, sort of – take on that presidential tone, stand above everybody else. You know, a lot of people say that, of course, you know, that would be Vice President Biden to do that. But I'm just not sure that that's been accomplished. So I'm still looking for that. Chip is a good Republican, aside from the fact that you're looking forward to hearing them all, all of them advance their socialist agendas. Of course. What are you looking <laughs> Well, I mean, tonight? you had admit, you admit mentioned it, and that is what I, what I want to see the most is, does Joe Biden benefit from... Um, mm-hmm. From the, the war, Elizabeth the Warren, the yeah. Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie yeah. Sanders. I think that's yeah. right. I yeah. think we're going to get to see that tonight. Yeah. Joe that's Biden's right. the happiest guy in the world, right. but they're fighting that out. Kevin. Yeah, I, I wonder if we'll find. You know, there's been this argument about whether there's room for Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in this race. How long they can both stay in it, and mm-hmm. all of that. Yeah, I there's want... incre- increasingly questions among regular Republic Democrats as to whether there's room for Bernie Sanders. Period. <laughs> right. Right. And so I wonder if we'll we'll take a step toward toward resolving that. I. I honestly don't think Vice President Biden's going anywhere anytime soon, no matter you what mean happens as a, right as now. A sure. As a leader and just as the position he's in. I just think people, 
You see this over and over again, his popularity with African-American voters, which won't matter much, and the belief he can beat Trump. All right. We're out of time. Mm -hmm. Kyle Hayes up there at NPR in Washington, Mo Ivory, Chip Lake, uh, Kevin Riley. Thank you so much for being here for Political Rewind today. Thanks to all of you who are listening to the show out there, listening to us on podcasts, whatever. Glad to have you here. We're back tomorrow at 2. We will talk about the highlights of the Democratic presidential debate. Uh, as well as all the state news that's unfolding at the legislative session and beyond. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again tomorrow at 2.